Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So we left off, uh, we had just talked about natural disasters, and now we're coming into the main um, event or the main portion of uh, Egypt, and I say that because that's the kind of thing I focused on for Egypt because they have such an interesting society. Not that they don't have interesting agriculture or trade. Um, like every other society that we've looked at and that pretty much humans have lived in since, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, uh, Egyptian society was stratified. And we have a couple different layers of this cake. The frosting on the cake, or maybe the toppers on the frosting, so the little man and woman who are getting married or whatever uh, gendered dolls you have on top of your cake. I don't know why I'm using a cake. Uh, why don't we use a pyramid, because it's Egypt. Uh, at the top of the pyramid, we have the pharaoh. Um, underneath, there are various um, elite, uh, both elite family members and elite uh, bureaucrats. And then we have uh, commoners, which includes craftspeople, uh, farmers and others, and, then, and laborers. And then really, slaves should be at the very bottom. And we'll talk about each one of these groups in turn uh, fairly briefly. So the pharaoh is uh, at the tippy top. The pharaoh was um, divine, uh, or it depends on the time of, uh, you remember we're looking at 3,000 years, so I'm kind of compressing this. Um, in the old kingdom, the ruler was seen as divine representative of the gods. Um, later on, uh, he became a god, uh, or sometimes she became a god herself or himself. And by the New Kingdom, the ruler's role was largely as a protector of the people and a warrior. Um, there we go. There's the warrior king. Uh, the royal family uh, was headed by the pharaoh and his chief wife, uh, or in the case of a female pharaoh, which happened a couple of times, I think she was large. Oh, sometimes she would take on like manly attributes. She would like wear a fake beard and stuff, which is kind of cool. Um, but uh, the pharaoh would have had more than one uh, sexual partner. Uh, but his chief wife was named like as the main wife. The rest were uh, concubines uh, or wives, things like that. The main wife would be the one, or the chief wife would be the uh, person from which the heir would usually come. If there was no male heir, um, usually Usually one turns off their phone to be respectful of the class, and I'm by far the worst at that. Ugh. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Yeah, like I said, uh, new dynasties were formed when uh, there was no male heir, and sometimes we had conflict, and sometimes a uh, different uh, husband from a, another royal family would be sought to be uh, married to maybe one of the chief daughters or something like that. There were different ways, of, uh, but it wasn't ideal. Uh, below that, we had uh, semi-elites or uh, state officials, maybe not royal family, but certainly um, hereditary and up there. Uh, this would have been people like uh, viziers or 
priests, viziers are just um, advisors, um, granary overseers, generals, uh, you know, basically every, all the state apparatus were run under these uh, semi-elite officials. Um, again, these were largely hereditary and not always, but generally these were males and the jobs were passed down to their main son or their oldest son usually, but not always, but that was the tendency. The idea underlying all of this is the idea of mat or order. And this is basically status quo, but with religious and other undertones. You want mat to be continued or to be upheld and by um, having one's son take over, if you're a male in a job, having your son take over your job was upholding mat, upholding the cosmic order that exists here on earth. And so having a pharaoh from that lineage, having you know, um, everything exist in this prescribed way is a reflection of the rightness of Egyptians as opposed to all the wrong way that everyone else around the world, their known world, did. Um, the military, uh, the goals and makeup of the military changed over time. Starting out, uh, it was mostly local militias and there was a national force, but it was largely labor, they were protecting like labor groups and miners. So it was a pretty small scale piecemeal or, you know, just kind of protecting their local interests sort of thing. Um, by the Middle Kingdom, they were protecting border defenses. So they had built borders around the country and they were keeping um, those who are unwanted out of the kingdom. Um, they had garrisons and so, so it was more outward facing military. And then in the New Kingdom, we had a more professional force. Technology jumped forward. They had chariots and uh, compound bows, or no, excuse me, not compound bows, that'd be amazing. Uh, composite bows, so bows made out of horn and wood rather than just plain old long bows. They were smaller, compact, and more powerful. Please excuse me. Sorry. Um, Non-elite men could rise to prominence in the military, but still would have been led by hereditary officials. Uh, the top brass, the people who led the army, were usually um, educated and uh, elite. So here's a border fortification. Um, and again, chariots and bows and things came in. This would have been a big, um, remember the um, chariots would have been like tanks. Um, many of them would have been drawn by, um, drawn by donkeys rather than horses. Horses were extremely expensive and difficult to keep in Egypt, uh, so only the top people would have had horses. Scribes, uh, again, um, we have to think back to the ancient world. Writing was not common. Uh, would, we are unusual in human history since the invention of writing to have such a literate society. Um, and this would have been learned through special schools and apprenticeship with other scribes. Um, and it would have been passed down again, hereditary father to son often. Uh, but there were certainly women scribes by the Middle Kingdom onwards. I will say that, well, okay, it's hard to say exactly, but it seems that the Egyptians had a pretty high level of literacy for the top layer of the society. It's hard to say in Mesopotamia 
uh, or other places. Uh, Rome would have been pretty literate, but they were later. Um, they, it seems that if you were an official, you had to know how to read and write. Whether or not you were a scribe didn't matter, but if you were in that top layer, you had seems like you had to have been able to read. So there might have been slightly more widespread literacy among the top layer than in other societies. But then again, we might just be biased because we see so much Egyptian writing. Okay. Doo, doo, doo. By the uh, Roman era, it's interesting. Uh, the uh, Egyptian written language was. It would be like if we were still writing Latin or. Yeah, about 2,000-year-old dead language that was still being used as like the main language of, uh, of writing would have been uh, a dead language by then because the spoken language would have changed so much, which is pretty fun. Uh, they would have learned, again, through apprenticeship at early age. Okay. Um, then we drop down to the non-elites, uh, craftspeople and artisans, uh, many of the artifacts and the buildings that we see today and associated with ancient Egypt would have been built or made by these people. Um, they may, even the, if they were painting something that had writing on it, they may or may not have been literate. Some would have been, but not all of them. Um, and so they might have just been copying down from a scribe uh, inscriptions, perhaps, uh, or writing on other things. So it's hard to say whether or not the craftspeople themselves were literate but there would have been workshops. These workshops would have been connected with royal or elite households. So you would be like permanently employed by a bigwig. Uh, they had specialists like stonemasons, um, painters, potters, uh, metal workers, gold, silver, copper, things like that. Jewelry, um, plasterers, or stucco, I guess not stucco, with plaster. Um, draftspeople, so um, engineers and others. Okay, uh, yes, uh, we will get uh, to the slaves, but again, uh, this would have been hereditary. Um, again, and I also want to mention, uh, slaves were not building the pyramids. That was not, it was people who were um, serving their labor. I just want to point that out, again, because it's such a common misconception. Um, now that you know that, I know it's going to change your outlook on the entire world, but, you know, worth pointing out again. Um, workers actually formed unions and were, went on strike um, with a, they had a leadership. I mean, it was very similar to, okay, very similar. In the grand scheme of organizing workers, it was fairly similar to unions um, uh, that we have today, which is kind of fun. Uh, so I found this comic to be a little ridiculous because actually there were problems with unions. Or you could say that the unions had problems with the people that were running it. Um, Craftsmen had higher status than peasants. They didn't have to grow food for themselves. They could have bought food. They were given food by the people that employed them. Peasants, the vast majority of society, again, probably, oh, majority 90%, uh, had a difficult life growing themselves food and growing food and uh, serving uh, for labor for the country. Um, you know, grains, vegetables, fruits, cows, goats, all of these things would have been commonplace in their lives. Um, here we have a peasant driving cattle, uh, pulling a plow. Life expectancy was not great. Um, people would die at about uh, 30 to 36 was the general life expectancy. So, you know, I hope you are all enjoying your post, you know, the, the past, you're all past midlife already. So, you know, enjoy the slide downhill. 
uh, and I'm practically an old geezer. Okay, um, they, although the upper classes certainly had a sense of superiority over peasants, they had a respect for the power that they could wield if they got upset and made a mob uh, and stormed the granaries or things like that. So they, although they were, they felt themselves to be above the peasants, they weren't as contemptuous or dismissive of the peasants now individuals. I'm sure there were individual elites who are jerks about peasants, uh, but many of them respected the fact that most of their food came from peasants, um, and they would have been seen as important, extremely important parts of the economy. Um, many people who owned their own land were ex-military. They were given the land, um, which was a pretty, uh, you know, valued, just like we, um, there's a lot of, you know, valuing of uh, military in our society. Same in, in Egypt. Uh, if you'd served in the military, that would have been seen as a great positive uh, in, your, in your favor. Um, if you lost your land as a farmer, you would often become a landless, wandering Bedouin in the desert, uh, perhaps herding animals or trading, uh, something like that. Um, the biggest time-consuming thing that they spent their lives doing was maintaining the canals and the irrigation networks um, as their fields were generally turned over uh, and uh, fertilized by the floods. They had different types of work than other farmers we've seen. Families generally lived together um, in... Uh, uh, so here's those Shadoof worked uh, together in a... Uh, yeah. Um, they often lived together in housing compounds with gardens, and your extended family would live there. Um, often it would be like the father's parents would be there, because it had been the father's, um, or the, the husband's family compound, and then the wife moved in, usually, but not always. If there was a uh, childless, or excuse me, a male uh, heir-less family, perhaps the eldest daughter would marry somebody who would be basically adopted into the family, and then they would become the heir. Um, although women could own property, um, it was generally more, men, men owned much more property. Um, and technically nobody owned any land because it was all the pharaoh's land and he was just letting you little worms work it. Okay. Uh, slaves and criminals were, slaves were often captured for workers. They had rules. You couldn't just um, treat your slaves however you wanted. Um, when it was hot out, they had to get less work. They were allowed a certain um, allowances for food and clothing and um, health or uh, body care, things like oil. Um, that was part of their um, part of the rules. Um, if you were a slave of a high-ranking person, your life was probably better than a lot of peasants because you lived in a city. You got plenty of food. You probably had a lot of free people who took orders from you. If you were a top-ranking person's slave, you could have it pretty good. Um, you're still a slave. Um, uh, but you would often be freed on the death of your master. Uh, many frames uh, were even adopted or married into their master's family. Um, and some even inherited their, their master's property and businesses. So, uh, you know, it it wasn't quite as, uh, even though there was some ethnic division uh, inherent in slavery, as many of the people were captured war, um, captured in war, so they would have come from outside of Egypt. Um, there would have been native-born Egyptians who were also slaves. Um, so 
it, there may have been less, of, it may have been easier to integrate afterwards um, as opposed to in the United States where um, our slavery was much more based on um, race and ethnicity rather than uh, economic position. Although that obviously influenced it later, we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Criminals were often banished to mines, and their noses would be cut off, uh, which sucks um, in a desert because uh, you need your nose to die, or not to die, uh, if you want to breathe and not dry out your nasal passages. Okay, um, I'm going to blitz through the religion. Uh, it was pantheistic. There were uh, triads of gods, basically uh, a mother and a father god uh, with offspring. Uh, there were a whole bunch of these, like, godly families um, of all kinds of interesting looking individuals. For example, Osiris, one of the chief deities, uh, brought the Nile, uh, brought the Nile flood, and was also in charge of death. So when you died, Osiris was one of the gods that you would meet. Um, husband, uh, so was, the, was married to Isis, and uh, looks like a king, right? So there's um, and Isis was the royalty, or deity of royalty. She's seen as like the royal mother. Um, there are tons. I, I'm not going to have time to get into all of them. Uh, let's see. Let's hit some highlights. What about uh, Ra? Yeah, Ra is um, the sun god. Uh, outside of Thebes, this was the largest cult. So you didn't have to... It's not like you had to pick one god and go with them. Like all the gods were considered to be there, and depending on what sort of thing you were interested in getting done, you would go um, and pay something to the priests of that particular god to give you a hand with whatever you were asking for. Um, so if you were praying for the Nile, you might pray to Osiris, or you might give something to the temple at Osiris for Osiris um, if you were. Um, Looking at, oh, Toth, the god of knowledge, uh, you might um, give something to the temple for them. Again, you didn't do as much. Uh, it wasn't like a very, uh, you pray alone in your house sort of, uh, uh, although there would have been household shrines, and there would have been uh, each little city, just like um, Catholics have patron saints, and a lot of towns in Italy have like a saint that is associated with their town. They have a saint's day, and they like have big parties for their saint. It's actually kind of like that, where they would have like their deity, like images of their deities that would get brought out for their special, you know, the equivalent of saints' days, you know, our local gods' day, and they'd have a big party and stuff like that. Actually, Catholicism, especially Roman Catholicism, grew out of Roman practice, which had multiple gods and patron deities and towns, and from an anthropological point of view, Saints are really similar to how many of the ancient societies that had multiple gods viewed all these gods, right? Like, uh, I don't know the, the Catholic saints, but I know there's like one for lost people or things that are lost, or I know there's some for children or orphans. You know, like each, each saint has like a thing that they do. Same thing with, uh, with many of the Egyptian gods. Um... Yeah, I'm not going to get into all of them, just for, sorry. Um, I just can't. Uh, I will mention that um, they had kind of a yin and yang thing going on, although they weren't aware of what yin and yang was. If you think about Egypt, 
right? It's that stark demarcation between that valley where there's farming and then the desert where there's nothing, right? So there's that real kind of a duality, life, death, desert, um, lush landscape, um, safety of being within the state versus the chaos that is outside, um, good, evil, right? So there's a, they were really into the duality of things. Um, there's a strong belief in the afterlife. I don't have to tell you that, because if anyone knows anything about Egypt, they know about mummies and the belief in the afterlife. So here, um, when a person dies, they go before a court, and they weigh your heart, which is right here, against a, a feather. And that feather represents mat. So they're basically weighing your, he your heart against whether or not to ask whether or not you have kept up social order during your life. If you have, you're able to proceed um, and potentially make it into the afterlife. If you have not, if you have disturbed social order, if you have not upheld Mott by keeping all of the social conventions that you're supposed to, bad news for you. Uh, similar, it's a similar mechanism to karma. It's a similar me mechanism to sin. All of these things work to help you or to encourage people to uphold the social order. And it seems to work pretty well. Okay. Um, <coughs> so certainly there was hubris here, and we can talk briefly about it. Um, um, just for those of you that came in late, uh, next, the 12th is when we have our final exam, uh, May 12th, which is a Friday from 1.30 to 2.3.20, but it's not going to take any longer than the midterm. So you'll be out of here probably by 2, 2.15. Anyway, um, so hubris we can look at in agriculture. They certainly had problems, uh, right? They were de completely dependent on the Nile. If you had a couple bum years with the Nile, you'd be up a creek without a paddle, just to mix some metaphors there. Um, and so they would have, they had all their eggs basically in that one basket. And I mean, frankly, they're in a desert environment otherwise, so I guess you kind of have to depend on the Nile. Um, and so I can't really ding them too much. They did a pretty good job uh, dealing with what they had, right? Um, let's see, trade. I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous to say that they were self-sufficient, even though that's what they wanted to be. Um, so, or what they felt they were. It was interesting that they would bring everything in and make it their own, which is kind of unusual. Um, I know that the, uh, like the, uh, the Japanese, are also uh, historically very good at this. Uh, they would import a lot from whatever was the major power at the time, like um, China and Korea. Not that they'll admit to importing anything from Korea. Uh, my Japanese friends were very adamant about that. And now today, uh, from or after World War II, they imported a lot from the West um, and adopted it and changed it and made it very Japanese. Um, the Egyptians did the same thing. They would adopt writing or adopt different types of foods and make them Egyptian. And then they were OK to use because they were, they were Egyptian. So um, a little deceit there, but still um, interesting. Uh, social organization, oh no, um, what else? Do, 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 do. Environment, uh, kind of tied to egg. 
They lived in a place that didn't have really as many natural disasters as others um, that we're going to talk about. Like the Aztecs and Incas had a lot worse environment or catastrophic environment, although they had some along the coast. Um, other than being super dry, if you're adapted for being dry, it's not that bad because it's pretty constant. Um, there were certainly diseases and things like that they had to worry about, but um, I wouldn't really say it was, I mean, other than relying on the Nile, right? Not too much, much hubris there. Um, in society, I would say they had their greatest amount of hubris, but even then it wasn't that much, even when they broke up. Egypt was Egyptian, and they were very proud of being Egyptian and very focused on, you know, even when there were different gnomes or different provinces that had power and they were at odds with one another, they were still Egyptian first. Um, and so that may have helped them overcome a lot of the problems because they still pulled together even though, for example, if a disaster struck today um, in any part of the country, uh, regardless of your political affiliation, you very well might help out people regardless, right? Uh, just, you know, if it happens in a red state or a blue state, people from others, the other, the other half of America would still come to help um, regardless of differences of political opinion. Same thing with Egyptians, regardless of potential fractions within them, they were still Egyptians and they still had that ethos, which I think might be the reason that they were able to last for 3,000 years. Um, I, I, I can't really, um, maybe they stuck to Mott too much, and that would have and did prevent them from adopting new things as easily as they might. But then again, on the other hand, they lasted for 3,000 years, so maybe uh, having a very set of core beliefs that you integrate new things into, that might be a good model to run on. So I can't, I, I can't really be that down on the Egyptians. They're kind of awesome. Okay. Um, any questions before we go on? Okay. Yay! Time is it? All right. Let's rock and roll on some Aztecs. Woo woo! So we'll start with the Aztecs and then we'll go to the Incas uh, because. I think it would be too, I, I know it would be too confusing if I did like Aztec environment, Inca environment. Aztec climate, Inca climate. That would be just ridiculous. So we're not gonna do that. Um, so we're gonna start with the Aztecs. Then we'll talk about the Inca and we're gonna do both of their histories up until we get to the Spanish invasion, which is really when both of them have uh, their major disasters that we're gonna talk about. Um, and then we'll get to the bit of hubris, and I think they have more hubris, I would say, than the, uh, than the uh, Egyptians, for sure. So let's start with the Aztecs. All right, I'm just gonna put these three out there because when I talk to people outside of the classroom, just random people on the street, Aztecs, Inca, and Maya get confused, and Olmecs, and, it's super, and I completely understand. So just real quick, Olmecs, Maya, Aztec, Inca. All right. That's chronological order. Olmecs are oldest. Maya next. Aztec and Inca are the same time. Olmecs are in central Mexico. 
really on the coast, like uh, the Gulf of Mexico coast. The Maya are in Yucatan, Guatemala. We are, all know that because we already talked about them. Aztecs are in central Mexico, like Mexico City. Inca are in Peru and the west coast of South America. Okay, so that's um, only these two met the Spanish in the form that we think of the Aztecs and Inca being a large civilization. By the time that the Maya met the Spanish, they were, had already collapsed for 400 years. They were living in a less complex society, not, probably not a state level, more like a chiefdom level, whereas these guys were states when they met them. The Olmecs have been gone for a long time. Okay, so, so we can keep all three of those clear. You guys shall have no trouble after this, but I just like to put it out there so you can, I find it's easier to like have the skeleton and then you hang, you know, then you put the muscles on it or you put the, the facts on the, the framework. So, um, so we're gonna talk about region and environment, chronology and history, agriculture, trade and society before moving on to the Inca. So right now we're looking at a drawing of Tenochtitlan, which I'll spell out for you because who can spell Tenochtitlan? Ten, um, Tenochtitlan. Because I'll be mentioning it a number of times. This is the Aztec capital. Um, we'll talk about it. So uh, the Aztecs were in central Mexico, and I mean like Mexico City, in the upper, um, upper plateau between the Sierra Madre. There's two... Uh, there's two like sides of the Sierra Madres here and here, and they're here in the middle, or here in the middle. Um, they would have been under what is present-day Mexico City, and this is a political map showing the different provinces that the Aztecs came to take over uh, by the time the Spanish arrived. This is when the Spanish arrived. If they hadn't arrived, it's likely that they would have gotten bigger, because um, that's all they had been doing up until this point. Most of them, uh, the provinces that they controlled were in uh, central Mexico, although they did have uh, one down here where the chocolate grows. And then they had plenty of trading posts, and their trade network was much larger than their political control. And I'll talk about this later, but it's not like they had borders and they made like boundaries and said, within this space, we own it. They basically had a mafia-like hegemony over or hegemony over these areas where they basically had the rulers of these different provinces report to them and give them taxes and things like that um, for protection uh, from their own army. So uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So it's a that's why they don't have to have all the provinces. Like their biggest ad uh, adversary was in the middle of their empire, which would seem a little odd except for the fact that they don't need to control the territory. They just control the capital cities of each one of these provinces. So it's a little bit of a different type of, uh, not like Rome, where Rome had those borders. They built a wall in Scotland to keep those nasty Scots at bay. Um, right? They had physical barriers around the edges. And then within the Roman Empire, everything was theirs. Completely different model of rulership, which is really cool. Anyway, back to the, uh, it's a really hilly environment. It's up in the mountains. Uh, I was there once in July, and it w froze. <laughs> like, it's really high. Uh, it's pretty neat. Uh, there's a lot of uh, volcanoes, um, and so the soil is really rich. Uh, 
but then you also have volcanoes, and there are some towns that have been completely covered over by volcanoes, so that kind of sucks. Uh, it's fairly dry up in the mountains, although down the coast, this is where the Olmecs were, it's a swampy rainforest, so you could, um, they could easily import products from very wet areas, although where they were was semi-arid. I will also note that, uh, and I'll come back to this, there is a lake in the middle here in the Valley of Mexico. And it's just like the Great Salt Lake in that um, because it's a basin, if you look at it from a cross section, Sierra Madres, basin Sierra Madres. So all the rain that falls in here runs downhill into a lake, the Lake of Mexico. Uh, well, I'll show you an image of it later. Uh, but basically, it erodes minerals out. And so it deposits those minerals in there. And then when the water evaporates, it leaves the minerals behind. And so it becomes a salt lake, just like that's what happens with the Great Salt Lake. It doesn't have drainage to the sea. So it keeps absorbing more and more minerals, just like the Dead Sea in Israel. OK. Um, so I'll come back to that lake. Uh, but know that it's there, because it's an important part of Aztec uh, life. OK, so this is the chronology. Um, I'm not going to go into each one of these, because for the Aztecs, we're largely concerned with the last two. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about the pre-classic in central Mexico. I'm only briefly going to mention the classic. classic. not really going to talk about the epiclassic. And then I'll pick up with the post-classic again, which is when they first arrive in the early post-classic. And they found their town. And it grows to become more important in the early Aztec period. And um, then they start to become an empire in the late Aztec period. So I'll talk about primarily about those three periods and what's going on. Waiting for see a couple people still writing. Um, so remember, in Europe we had the Roman Warm Period that ended back here, um, and we'll talk about Teotihuacan, which was a little later than Rome, but um, but uh, succeeded during the same period. Um, and then we see the medieval Warm Period, which is a bounce back. Um, okay. So uh, in the classic period, so this is the same time that the Maya classic was happening more or less, we have Teotihuacan. And I've mentioned Teotihuacan when I was talking about the Maya because this is a major important city where some Maya rulers would come to undergo uh, rituals that would install them as rulers or give them particular probably supernatural and social powers. Um, we also had people from Teotihuacan going into the Maya area <clears throat> kind of like an ambassador or something like that, that we have on record like in inscriptions, which is pretty cool. Anyway, so Teotihuacan was a major city. I showed you a map of it. It's the one with all the little apartment buildings. The really square, really dense city. That's Teotihuacan. And it was the major power in central Mexico until about 550 of the Common Era. When it burned down, it was not rebuilt. OK, so now we're going to jump. Um, the Aztecs liked to emulate Teotihuacan. They were kind of like amateur archaeologists. They knew that that ruin was there. They knew it was an important city that had great dominance in the area. But uh, nobody really knew a ton about it. The Aztecs are actually latecomers. They weren't there at the time of Teotihuacan. The Aztecs came from up north. We don't know where they're from. They came from the north. Their legend says they came from a place called 
Aslan. A-T-Z-L-A-N. We don't know where that is. It's somewhere in the north. It might be mythical. They say they came from a seven-lobed cave. Like their people came out of this cave. And you see the footprints? That's, uh, the Aztec didn't have a full writing system. They had a rebus system only. And they couldn't write everything down uh, that they wanted. They couldn't write down spoken word so, uh, as, as a full writing system does. But they have these maps. And the maps have people walking over them. I'll show you another one in a second. And the footsteps show the progression. And so they'll have these big, big maps. And then the people will have steps. And it's a narrative. So you'd probably stand there with like a map interpreter saying, and then they went to this town. And they did this and that and the other. And then they went to this town. And this happened. Um, <clears throat> and so they would have left this Aslan place of the, or Tula's place, uh, Aslan in the north and come south. And we should say that, or I should point out that the Aztec language, Nahuatl, Spell out. Sorry, a whole bunch of. Nahuatl, which is uh, similar to the language that was spoken by the Utes. And the Utes are the namesake of the state of Utah. So they have a language family that stretches from Utah down to central Mexico. So it's a big cultural linguistic area. Um, they might have come from the American Southwest. And they did trade with people from the American Southwest. So hard to say exactly where they came from. But here's one of their narratives where um, these are people that are wearing like kind of like uh, Aztec togas, I guess they'd be the equivalent of. So these are men, because uh, they're wearing that toga type mantle. Um, and these are dates. So this is like a cylindrical thing, uh, like uh, one. That's uh, one flint, two temple, three deer, four. Oh, I forget what that one is. I don't remember. Rabbit, temple, flint. Anyway, so this is their calendar. And so this is depicting days. And this is them traveling along these days. And these are different places that they go. Maybe they hunted there. That's a hunting thing. And so when they would write something, Chapultepec means grasshopper mountain, or place of the grasshopper, I should say. Um, and so this, or no, mountain, sorry. Uh, so this is the mountain symbol. And then they drew a grasshopper on top of it. So they would remember, oh yeah, Chapultepec, right? So it's not a full writing system, but we can certainly tease out what they're doing. Um, and so this would have a whole narrative about, oh, so-and-so went here and there. And they came down from the north. Um, and they had to pass through all these different areas. And nobody really liked them. They just kept getting kicked out of towns. So they'd be in a town for a while, and they would be, mercenaries. And they would fight in wars for people. And then you know, they'd do something wrong, and they'd get kicked out. Because they were basically, they were always an unwanted ethnic minority in all these different places. They kept getting kicked out and having to go elsewhere. <clears throat> they thought they had a really great place near, near present-day Mexico City, near Tino what would become Tenochtitlan, um, just before they founded it, and probably the Oh, late, uh, late 1,000s or so, not exactly sure. Anyway, um, they thought they were in really good with the Kulhans. Uh, don't need to know their name. Um, and they made a great alliance with them. And the Kulhans said, hey, yeah, you can totally have this land over here. You can make that your, you can keep it. That's where you guys can live. You can make their your city. You can, you know, it's your land. Go for it. And like, this is great. Let's cement our relationship. And so they said, why don't you marry your, 
you know, princess, your daughter, the, to the king of these guys, why don't you marry your daughter to us, you know, one of our princes, and we'll cement this relationship, it'll be great. Even better, why don't we make her a god? And the guy's like, you're going to make my daughter a god? Go for it, here she is. They forgot to tell uh, him that to make her a god, they'd have to kill her and skin her, and then a priest would wear her skin and uh, do ritual dances in it, and that's how she would become a god. Uh, the king was not super happy about that. Um, maybe if they told him first, still probably not. Uh, and so they got booted out again. And now there was like nobody in the central lowlands that, or in the in the basin that wanted that. Here's the priest wearing the skin. See, there's the hands hanging off his hand. Pretty, pretty. That'd be an amazing Halloween costume. Probably get you arrested uh, if it was. Well, don't do a real one. Obviously, it'd be an amazing Halloween costume now. Anyway, so they get kicked out, and what do they do? They have to go to marginal land that nobody else wants. There's a huge swamp in this lake basin, in this saltwater lake. There's a huge swamp, and they go, let's go into the swamp, because nobody's there. In the middle of the swamp, they find an island, and on that island is a cactus, and there's an eagle on the cactus, and the eagle has a snake in its talons, and it's eating that snake, and this happened to be uh, foretold to them, at least according to the legend, uh, by their deity Huitzilopochtli, uh, who said, you're going to find, you're going to found a city on uh, a place where the eagle is eating a snake on a nopal cactus. And this has become so important to the founding of the Aztec that it is the central, that's what the actual central thing is on the Mexican flag. I don't know if you ever looked at it very closely, but look at this. It's this is the Aztec sign for stone, and this is how the Aztecs depict water. It's got shells and droplets coming out of it. And this is a Nopal cactus, and then obviously the snake eating the rattle, or excuse me, the eagle eating the rattlesnake. So this is really central even to Mexicans, uh, excuse me, to central Mexicans today. Where I worked in Yucatan, they were like, Frickin' Aztecs, it's always Aztec, everything on the money, and blah, we're, you, we're Maya, we're not Aztecs, this is stupid. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little, right, okay. Um, so, they found this city, they built this city on rock and roll. Uh, we're gonna pick up with the early Aztec next. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.